you'll keep your Bibles open to Proverbs 8. We will attempt to make our way through it this morning, although we only read uh, the first nine verses there. Uh, it's a long chapter, so I thought it uh, might be okay if we truncated that just a little bit since we're going to work through the text anyway as we get to this. Uh, the last three chapters have been a pretty bold and penetrating look at temptation. That's been the focus. Uh, he's worked through that, Solomon has, with his son in tremendous detail. And as we've said often, uh, Solomon is preparing his son for life in the real world, along with an unflinching glimpse at how we have to deal with and engage the deceptiveness of sin in our own hearts. That's a major issue, and we don't want to uh, run over it too quickly by any stretch. Uh, so we don't want to just we don't want to look at sin as though we're dealing just with external influences. We have to remember that we have to deal with internal influences as well and what those look like. So he's done that for three chapters, but he isn't done. In these two chapters, chapters eight and nine, they work together. They're a continuation. Solomon also opens up the reality of God's good and great sufficiency for us in facing temptation in ways that he hasn't already. He's going to expand on one area in particular, which is this concept of wisdom. And it does help us re- remember, uh, and uh, by the way, the um, let me just back that up a second. I was going to use this as the title, Wisdom, and I realized some of you would not recognize what that device is. Um, that you'd probably only see it in a museum, those of you that are younger. So I, I redid the graphic uh, to something that was a little more, a little more understandable. Uh, so in these two chapters, Solomon opens up the reality of God's provision for us, as I've already said, and it reminds us of where he started this entire journey back in chapter 1. Let me just go over a couple of those verses again for you. You remember that at the very outset, he stated his objectives in this book. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, and to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, and to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to youth. So let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of their wise and their riddles. And what you want to bear in mind, as we've mentioned before, but let me refresh again, when Solomon uses this word wisdom, he's referring not just to some esoteric form of knowledge. He's talking about how to live righteously. Because it doesn't come innately. It's not inborn in us. We're we're born in sin, and we're learning how to cooperate with a whole new nature. If you're a Christian here today, that's part of what's happened in you. If you're not a Christian, you can't live wisely at all, because there's no way that you can live unto God the way that He's asking for, apart from this change within our hearts. So Solomon realizes that we need to come into the holy skill of living righteously before God. That it isn't just fallen into, it's cultivated thoughtfully. Now maybe you never thought about that in your Christian life. 
Maybe as a born-again believer, you thought, okay, I get saved, I give my heart to Christ, and now I just stumble through, and you're struggling with sin, and you say, what's the deal? I didn't expect this. Well, no, you probably didn't. But the Christian life is something that has to be thought about, and how to live righteously and holily takes skill. That's what this book is aimed at, and he's going to look all of that in one place in particular, but that's that's the meaning behind this word wisdom and its central thought. If we're going to do this, tools have to be taken up and learned, and also the raw materials have to be studied. That's you and me for our natures and how we act and react under all circumstances. I'm not a woodworker, and you should all be thankful for that. Uh, I tried my hand at one craft in school. I thought I made my mother a uh, a bowl, and it was just kind of a misshapen, strange clay object um, with paint on it. Um, but some of you here are skilled craftsmen. You know how to do certain things. And a woodworker needs to know his tools, needs to know how a lathe works, and a plane, and a saw, and a router, and a gouge, and a host of other tools. But then he also needs to know how different woods respond to the treatment that they engage in. And those woods have to be gauged for the purposes they're going to be used for. Hardwoods and softwoods and how the grains go and what can be sawn and pegged and drilled and glued and laminated and by what processes in order to achieve the end that you're looking for. A good example is balsa wood. When I was a little kid, we had these balsa wood gliders. Maybe they still sell them, I don't know. But you'd put these little things together. They were virtually just a little heavier than paper. They even had to put a, a, a metal staple in the front of it so it had enough weight to, to fly forward. But it was nice, light wood. What you don't want to do is make this stool out of balsa wood. Because as soon as I sit on it, it will be dust. You can't use that wood for certain things. And by the same token, you couldn't make those little gliders out of mahogany. If you did, they couldn't fly under their own weight. They'd be too heavy. So you've got to understand how those things function. And the Christian needs to understand the tools for dealing with sin and the materials of our own wicked hearts and minds to walk in truth and holiness well. It's a skill. And you learn to do it better and better. It's why it's referred to in the Bible as a walk. And guess what? Children do not learn to walk the moment they're born. They, it's a skill they cultivate. Now they have an, an inborn um, ability to learn to walk, but they haven't learned it yet. And as Christians, because we've been born again and the Holy Spirit resides in us, we have an inborn ability to learn how to walk in holiness but we haven't learned how to do it yet. And we're learning it throughout life. We're getting better and better at it. We don't just stumble into the Christian life lived well. We grow in it. We increase in understanding and insight and skill over time. And these opening chapters, the first eight chapters, seven chapters, have been a kind of a boot camp to that end. He's, he's built these foundational thoughts here. And there's going to be, as we work through the book of Proverbs, a major shift coming. We, we get two chapters down, eight and nine, we get through. And then in chapter 10, there's a major change in the way that the book functions. Its whole structure is altered. It doesn't work exactly the same way it does now. But if you don't get what you get in these two chapters, you won't get how the rest of the book works either. So he's been working up to that end. He didn't just 
Solomon didn't start off with his son by just throwing great ideas at him. Any more than Albert Einstein's father just came up to him one day and said, E equals MC squared, just think about that. And let the kid spin. I mean, that, that isn't the way you work. That isn't how you learn. And it, it isn't true in biblical truth either. So, while this is one of the longest chapters, as I already mentioned, it's really built on five very simple ideas that we want to tease out this morning. And this is the really good news after three chapters of somewhat bad news, or, or at least hard listening. We've heard some pretty sobering stuff in those three chapters. And he's going to employ the same device that he used in the first in these opening chapters. That is, he's going to use the concept of personification. Big word that just means he, he's using an idea, but he's using it in the form of a person to get the idea across. So he used temptation as a woman, and now he's going to use wisdom as a woman. He's going to personify it to help us grasp the concepts a little better. Uh, Wisdom, ultimately, is the antithesis of sin and temptation. They're absolutely opposed to each other. And where temptation seeks to drain away or undermine our strength and our sound decision-making, wisdom seeks to strengthen and empower a sound mind and clarity. And in the same way, we'll see this in the text, in the same way that temptation is a part of this fallen world order, so that we're surrounded by it on every side. We encounter it everywhere we go, which we already saw. Wisdom is a part of the original world order, even before the fall, and it hasn't gone away. It's still there, and we'll see that teased out. Again, there's this really complex um, um, section here. Let me back up. There's a slide missing, and I'm not sure why. We'll stay here until we get to that slide, because it'll probably show up later, because I goofed it up. Um, the, the breakdown is simple. It's in five sections. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to talk about wisdom's ubiquity. That's that nice word I just had here, ubiquitous. If you don't know it, this is good for you. You should learn it, especially you young people. It's a good word to stun your teacher with, stump your parent with if you're homeschooled. Uh, secondly, in verses 6 through 11, we'll look at wisdom's utterances. In 12 through 21, we're going to look at wisdom's ultimate method. That's kind of the core of where we want to go this morning. In 22 through 31, wisdom's upward call. And in 32 through 36, wisdom's ultimatum. We'll go through those. If you didn't get them right, then we'll come back and we'll get them. Wisdom's ubiquity. Ubiquitous. It's a great word. And it means, as you see on the end of the the definition there, it's found everywhere. It isn't hidden. It isn't like we're asking you to find some secret knowledge, what we're doing is we're asking what Scripture is doing is saying, let me open your eyes to what's already there. Brian talked about this in the Sunday school class with Jesus being the light of the world. He's opening our eyes to truth, to reality as God sees it, rather than reality as we understand it with our darkened hearts and minds. So look at the beginning verses. Does not wisdom call? Verse 1, does not her understanding, does not understanding raise her voice? Now that's, remember in the previous chapter, folly was out there, temptation was out there calling. He says, but wisdom calls too. Wisdom's yelling out to us. On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. 
Beside the gates in the front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call. And it's an interesting word there. It's a a very rare plural in the Hebrew that means to everybody I call, not just to males, but to everybody I call out. My cry is to the children of mankind. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Wisdom is calling out everywhere. Wisdom is equipping us, again, for skill in holy living, and that is actually bombarding us. The truth is we aren't listening. God's built it into the world order. We're even going to see it in nature later on. And look at the three phrases that are used. On the heights, beside the way, every path you walk is calling you to think in terms of how do I navigate skillfully in holiness unto God. And at the crossroads, where every decision has to be made. You're being called to, again, to deal with this wisely. Beside the gates where commerce and justice are carried out. That was a a common picture in the Old Testament. So to you, O men, I call out to the simple. And we talked about that word before. It's those who are still immature, especially spiritually, or in their Christianity. To the inexperienced to those who still think like children, and to the fools. That's a little different. Though That's the dullard, the unthinking. Those who, if truth be known, don't engage their brains much. They don't think about life. They don't think about the decisions they make and how it impacts their souls and where it goes. Maybe you've gotten caught in that, that you come to church and you do church thinking when you're in church But when you're home, you think with a different set of values. When you're at work, maybe you think with an even different set of values. And things you would say and do there, you'd never do here. And things you'd do here, you'd never do there. That's a lack of integrity, of not having everything tied together inwardly. And we become somewhat emotionally, mentally, spiritually schizophrenic. And he's saying, no, you you can't live like that. The brain has to be engaged all the time for how we walk before God in all the decisions we make. And this, this wisdom is given to us, first and foremost, in the fact that the gospel's coming to us from every corner. You're hearing it from the radio and from television and on the internet. And, and as you pick up your Bible and as you come to church, the gospel's being preached to you and that gospel reality gives you an insight into the nature of how the whole world functions. Lostness and redemption. These two great concepts on either side that that need to be sorted through and lived with and thought about. And in the teaching of God's Word, we're confronted with that over and over, especially as we move into these chapters 10 and onward. And then even in examples in nature. And as I said, we'll see that later. This is why we see Christ in the New Testament referred to as the seeking Savior. The Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. He doesn't just launch us into this world and leave us to ourselves. He's seeking us. He seeks us through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of God's word, through the, the, the maintaining of places where there's worship and where the word of God goes out. This is God seeking you. If you're not a Christian here today, God has been seeking you to save you from your lostness, to forgive you of your sin, to reconcile you to the living God through the blood of His cross. And the fact that you're here today is proof that He has sought you so that you could hear this once again. He's seeking you everywhere. And no doubt you've confronted these truths over and over. You've heard the call of the gospel in other churches, in other places, at different times in life. And you've been resisting and resisting and resisting and saying, well, I'll, I'll take in a little head knowledge, but I don't want this to conquer my heart and mind. But he's calling. He's a seeking Savior. And that's the idea at the opening here. Wisdom calls. Understanding raises her voice. The shout goes out. And calls us to a different place. Wisdom is everywhere. Please change. Wisdom also has utterances. That's what we read in 6 through 11. Got another battery, John? I'm slowly fading out here. It may be a conspiracy. Somebody may have put a bad battery in there on purpose. We're back on. Okay. Pause for technical issues. Wisdom's utterances. Look at verse 6. Hear, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom speaks. The word of God speaks. Christ speaks in such a way as not to leave us in our sin but to move us away from it. Sin and temptation degrade the human being. They devalue humankind and the soul of man. Wisdom comes along and sees the way that sin has ravaged us and calls us to return to what we were created for. Now, everyone in this building, everyone in the sound of my voice, because I know we record these and they go out on the Internet and other places, you were created as a human being in the image of God to bear His image, to make His character known in the world. And sin and temptation is doing everything it can to obscure that image in you to prevent you from being who God has made you to be. And this gospel calls you, 
that you might be restored to that place, that that, that image might be renewed in you. Temptation speaks to us in a vacuum. It sucks us into its, its little world, but, but the wisdom of God calls us to understand that we were made for something much higher in God's eyes and in His purpose and in His plan. In Romans 8, you all know these verses. We know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who are called according to His purpose. How do we know that? Well, watch what God has done. For whom he did foreknew, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're called to this. Christian Are you content with just being born again? Have you gotten fire insurance from hell? Or do you realize that you're called to be conformed to the image of Christ? This is high. We don't just stop at being born again. That's the beginning. It's not the end. And from there, everything begins to take on a whole new life, a whole new cosmos. And and look at the words that are used here. Wisdom speaks noble things. Here, for I will speak noble things, elevating things, higher things. And in order to do that, wisdom has to speak what is right and fitting and, and not what's wicked and contrary to God. Wisdom speaks truthfully and straightforwardly, tells you the truth of your lostness, but tells you the truth of the marvelous salvation that's in Christ. Doesn't soft sell on either place. Many of you may have heard just this week the pronouncement that was uh, made by the Pope and has raised a huge flap as he answered a, uh, a column writer in a newspaper in Italy. And the newspaper writer wanted to know about what about those who don't have faith. And, and the Pope said, well, as long as you obey your conscience, that's, that's good enough. God receives that. That's a lie. Wisdom speaks the truth and says, look, the truth is you're lost in your sin. And the truth is Christ has come to save sinners and there's salvation in His name. But don't, when you say something like, like, just obey your conscience, you do away with the gospel, you do away with the cross. That isn't truth. Wisdom won't rest there, but will will bring the truth home even sometimes when the truth hurts, but then but then brings the healing. Wisdom, as the text says, leads us in straight paths. All my paths, my mouth will will utter truth for wickedness and abomination. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. It isn't a tortuous path that God leads us on. They're all straight to Him who understands. What we come to understand is, when we understand wisdom, that God is always calling us to exactly the same goal. He's never changed that. The goal is, be conformed to the image of my Son. Come to Him, find redemption in Him, the power of His Spirit poured out in you, but all toward one goal. Again, how has that goal consumed us or taken over our lives? Or is it just an aspect 
of our life. If it's only an aspect, religion, Christianity, will be a mystery to you. It'll be a set of rules of do's and don'ts. It'll be a tortuous path. If you understand that everything that God is doing in your life is to bring you to that final goal of His image, then everything becomes straight. Even the hard places, even the disappointments, even the pain, even the heartache can all be recouped. It's redeemed by His blood to bring you to that final place in Him. By wisdom we can discern what laws and practices and policies are best as opposed to those that devalue and degrade the dignity of the creature made in God's image. And we can tell that those policies are wicked and evil because they degrade man. And those that bring them to a better place, the best place in, in Christ, those are the good things. This is how wisdom speaks. And you can always tell wisdom's voice because it will never lead you away from those. Uh, a few, I have a portion in the back of my Bible where I write down good quotes. Um, they are not penned by me. Uh, they are quotes I have read from others. This is a quote from Thomas Brooks. He was one of the old Puritans. And in talking about how how these things always line up in the Word of God, he penned four lines that are so insightful. One, and this is for those who think, you see, if you come to believe that the, the life in Christ is some mysterious thing, lived by a, a nebulous spirit, you have to have your antenna up, to receive secret signals so that you really know how to live the Christian life. For Trekkies, if you're an Andorian. For those who were born in my generation, if you're like my favorite Martian. Then, and then the Spirit and the Word somehow get conflated. There's, there's a problem between them. Brooks wrote this, The Spirit never loosens where the Word binds. The Spirit never gives you freedom to sin, where the Scripture says don't. The Spirit never justifies where the Word condemns. If we're in sin, we're in sin. And the Spirit Spirit never tells you you're fine when you're guilty. The Spirit never approves where the Word disapproves. And the Spirit never blesses where the Word curses. They're always in sync. This is wisdom brought together and always working together toward this one grand and glorious goal. That brings us then to verse 12. And, and 12 through 21 is really the core concept here. There's five, and this is the central one. Everything hinges from this. And it is wisdom's ultimate method. Why in the world would I give you this picture? Because the picture is of contrast. This is going to set you up for the rest of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom's ultimate method is to deal with juxtaposition. Another good word. You little kids, learn that one. Stymie somebody later. Say, Mom, Dad, your actions are a juxtaposition to your teachings. That'll be a good one. That'll probably get you a spanking. Um, it did me. Um, so I pass it on in all that in that same spirit. I wisdom... I dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 
Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hear, I hate. You see the juxtaposition between the three qualities that were mentioned there? First was mentioned prudence and knowledge and discretion, and they are juxtaposed to pride and arrogance and perverted speech. This use of contrast is how the whole rest of the book of Proverbs works. And if you don't understand this, that he's going to be reinforcing the contrasts between prudence and knowledge and discretion and pride and arrogance and perverted speech through the rest of the book, You won't be getting what he's getting at, and he's going to do this with rapid repetition. Over and over and over again, he's going to be bringing these truths out. Prudence is common sense. And knowledge has to take into account God's revelation. I don't truly know the world until I know how God understands the world. And discretion is how I think or act on the knowledge, and with a common sense approach. And these are contrary to the way the world thinks, the way sin functions, which begins always with pride, a high opinion of self. And based on a high opinion of self, I become arrogant, which means not only do I have a high opinion of self, that means I'm somehow superior to others, and that will always result in perverted speech. I will communicate what is contrary to truth if I live in that paradigm. It's where we are. Instead, prudence, common sense, leads me to understand I'm a sinner, and I know that. And then God's revelation tells me just how deeply I'm a sinner, but then also how great His salvation is. And then as I take those together and understand both my lostness and the glory of His salvation, I can begin to make decisions in life and attitudes in life that conform to that dynamic, to that reality. And the lost can't. Because the lost are always looking to justify themselves. I know, because I still have a temptation to do it, don't you? Don't you still when you sin? Try little techniques to justify yourself in the eyes of God? Sure we do. I'll read my Bible more. I'll be nicer to my wife. I'll give a tract to the mailman. That'll make me feel good about my sin after I've sinned. I feel better about myself. Now, now that's, that's pride. That's self. And of course, once I'm ticking off the things on my list, then I get arrogant because after all, I would never sin like that. Really? Really? And then, of course, I will speak, I will communicate a paradigm. It's perverted speech. True understanding comes through thesis and antithesis, through comparison and contrast. Without contrast, you can't see colors. Without contrast, you can't tell one note from another. Without contrast, you can't tell one texture from another. Without contrast, you can't tell sweetness from sour. All true information comes to us by virtue of this contrast. And that's what he brings to us. That's what wisdom does. It helps us understand how contrast works. And it's contrasting two entirely different worldviews. One, where God has created the earth for his purposes and all that he's doing. And the other, where this world just popped into existence 
by some strange chance, which if you were in Sunday school, you found out can't happen. And the implications that flow from both of those worldviews. True understanding comes in this contrast. Some things are hard to see. And if the, the contrast isn't sharp, you can't read them. You can't tell that this is pretty hard to read in that upper left-hand corner. It is hard, but why? Because there's no contrast. Contrast tells you that this is what it is and that something else isn't that. It isn't the doublespeak of postmodernism. It clarifies truth. It says that some things are true and some things aren't true. It says that some things are black and black is not white and white is not black. That Christ is truth and light and not darkness and lies and and hidden things. And the further away from God's truth we move, the less able we are to make right decisions and right distinctions because of those. All these lines get blurred, and I'll tell you where they get blurred the most. They get blurred in morality. Once the lines have been blurred, once I've lost any sense of true contrast between God's created world and its fallen state and where He's going in in restoring and what this world is like now, I have no ability to make moral decisions. Moral confusion rules the day. And the proof of that is why our own political bodies and our own nation can't discern things rightly. That there's deep moral confusion at the heart of our, of our government because it's in the hearts of our politicians. Because we're outside of that place. And so something like abortion can merely be called an issue of women's health. See, I blur the lines. I change the words. I rename things. Or that creating a welfare state is actually a form of slavery and bondage which denies the dignity of those who are caught in the system. And that's what it does. And, and I'm not saying, trust me, we've all made wrong decisions for the right motives, thinking we were helping and doing the wrong thing. But that's where a lost world is stuck. Because they can't hear wisdom. Because wisdom is found in Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of God. You can't discern what the world was made for, what human beings were made for, why we exist, and so we devalue human life. It's it's why you can slaughter a baby in its mother's womb and be celebrated, but you can go to jail for breaking an eagle's egg. The moral distinctions are all gone. Let me just give you an interesting article that was in the Wall Street Journal last month. It was a report on a Cato Institute uh, report on the nature of the welfare state. I'm just using this as an example. I'm not picking on it. And the report was noting a disparity in certain things. And I'll just give you this as a matter of fact. In Hawaii, just Hawaii, there's a lot of other states that are pretty close behind In Hawaii, um, an average family only taking advantage of seven of the 126 anti-poverty programs that are available. 
only taking advantage of seven of them, that family will have a financial package for that year totaling $49,175. Why work? We've devalued work. We've devalued the human being and said, you're just to live off what we can give you. And no wonder those in poverty often rage. Because we've devalued them and enslaved them. And it's wicked. The authors found that in 11 states, quote, welfare pays more than the average pre-tax first-year wage for a teacher in those states. In 39 states, it pays more than the starting wage for a secretary. And in the three most generous states, a person on welfare can take home more money than an entry-level computer programmer. What's wrong with this picture? We're no longer able to make moral distinctions. We don't understand. And of course, if you don't understand that man was made for honest, upward work and for dignity that supports that in the human being, because we were made in the image of God, we'll turn them into slaves. It's what happens in the world. In John 1, we're reminded that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. How can we live in reality if we don't know that? We can't. We need to understand the contrast between a world that is just a cosmic accident... And a world that was created by the living God and populated by those He made to be born in His image. Which brings us then to 22 through 31. I won't work through all the rest of those verses for the sake of you can see what's going on there. That, that this wisdom this gives us counsel and, and insight. It's by me, by wisdom... Kings reign and rulers decree what is just, and by me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. And, and I love those who love me, and, I, and those who seek me diligently find me. And riches and honor are with me, not monetarily, but enduring wealth and righteousness. You see, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. And all of this is displayed by the fact that I walk in the way of righteousness, in paths of justice. Wisdom always walks in righteousness and justice and granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Now, then there comes this incredible picture, this upward call. I'll explain this in a second. 
Verse 22, the Lord possessed me, this is wisdom speaking, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, at the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths I was brought forth, when, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth and its fields, or its the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. See, wisdom delights in the children of man because it understands why we were created, what we're here for. There's a story told about a man who owned a farm, and uh, for years he had resisted coming into the, the modern age, the industrial age. As he was getting older, it was getting harder and harder to chop down trees. And so finally he decided, you know what, I need to go and maybe he was from Texas and said, I need to buy me one of them there fancy chainsaws. He went to the store and he looked at a bunch of them and the guy told him, man, this, this won't just double your, your ability to perform. It will increase your productivity tenfold. He says, man, that's a lot of money. He goes, yeah, but tenfold. For every tree you can chop down now, you can chop down ten, and you won't even be tired. He said, all right, I'll take it. He took it, and about two weeks later he came back, and he said, I want my money back, and he slammed it on the chest. The guy said, what's wrong? He said, it doesn't work. He said, I went out into my trees. It took me two days to cut down three trees. I used to do that in an afternoon. doesn't work. The guy says, well, let me see what's wrong with it. He picks it up and he pulls the cord and the engine takes off and the farmer goes, what's that? (laughs) If you're not using something for what it was really designed for, you're going to make a mess of it. Beloved, we were created for much higher things than sin. We weren't created for adultery and theft We weren't created for vulgarity and foolishness. We weren't created to bicker with each other and to have strife and disharmony. We were created to bear the image of the living God. We're living so far below that. And wisdom says you were made for better things. When, When God created the world... He didn't just step out one morning and say, hmm, think I'll create a world and some sentient beings and set it loose and see what happens. He had a purpose in mind in every design. Look, look at how he talks about the dust of the world when he was establishing the heavens, when he drew the circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm skies above. Before the mountains had been shaped, God said, they need to be a certain way. Because they have a purpose and a design. God didn't do it 
randomly or arbitrarily. He still doesn't act randomly or arbitrarily. Before he made a spring or a fountain or a mountain, he thought it through. And when he created the atmosphere, it was with planning and precision and forethought. And the, the form and function of everything had its design and its purpose. And the wise man sees this and then says, because he gets this wisdom, he says, then I was made by design and plan. And how do I live in that? That's wisdom. But how many of us actually live our lives that way? How many of us make our daily decisions taking into consideration God's ultimate intentions in bringing us forth as individuals? Man, it's a whole different way of life. I do not know why you would take a Rolls Royce and make it a pickup truck. It's beneath its dignity. It was created for luxury and power. And that isn't what it's being used for. And this is a picture of us being created to bear His image and being dragged through the mud of sin and foulness. Oh, beloved, He created you for so much more. Don't be content with just being born again. That butterfly didn't become that beautiful, didn't start off that beautiful. It started off as a little woolly worm. We are born again by the Spirit of Christ in a very rudimentary form. But oh, He's calling us to the fullness of what He has designed us for. In Ephesians, we read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for what? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. Or 1 Peter 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy He has caused us to be born again for what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's before us, and He's created us for it, and brought us forth by His power to go there. Or a reminder of 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. For what? That you may proclaim, show forth, make known the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you realize what you were made for? Man! Wisdom grasps this and says, All of life now needs to be put through that filter because the whole world doesn't function on that that point. But in Christ we do. In Christ we do. And that leads us then to the fifth portion, which is 32 through 36. And it's wisdom's ultimatum. If you look up ultimatum in the dictionary, the first definition isn't that it comes with a threat, simply that this is the last word and it's not negotiable beyond this point. That's the idea here. 
And so Solomon, wisdom at this point, is still speaking and comes down and wisdom speaks. Wisdom speaks and says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. So hear my instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates and waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me, he doesn't give a list of options. He says, this is it. He who fails to find me injures himself. See, all who hate me love death. Man, that's profound. What a stark contrast. There's only these two. And wisdom understands that paradigm. There's the God who created this world and what He's created is for, and there is other. And one is life and one is death. If you're not a Christian here today, you're on the side of death. But you're here that you might hear the word again to come to Christ. The one who receives every sinner who calls upon Him and forgives all our sin, having paid the price for it at Calvary. If you are a Christian, oh, don't let yourself stay in the caterpillar stage. Know what you were made for. And begin to to grow. Jesus said, and I understand that the exclusivity of the gospel is something that's troublesome to some, but this is wisdom. It deals with the truth as it is the truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way, not a way, and the truth, not part of the truth. This is where wisdom understands you cannot comprehend God and His purposes without comprehending Christ's central place in it all. And no one, no one, no one. In the Greek, I think that means no one comes to the Father except through Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You that You speak to us so clearly and starkly. That You don't obscure the truth or or make it somehow difficult to access, but You set it before us in straightforward, clear terms in a, a dichotomy, a contrast that cannot be missed. Here is this Christ coming into the world, crying out to us to be reconciled to you through his blood, but also telling us the truth that there's no other way for that to happen but faith in him. And at the same time, bidding us to think about who we are as created in your image, what you've made us for. And for the Christians here, not to just move on in life as though Christ saves us so that we can just live our own way, but that you have saved us for high and noble and wondrous things. 
And you call us to come by the power of your Spirit and live in that place through the wisdom of your Word. Father, seal these things to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand, please.
dismissed.